Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hypothesis. I'm Killian. I'm Amandine. And this week, we're going to talk about how science is actually done. So, you know, it's one thing seeing in the headlines, you know, scientists discover X, Y, Z. But it's another thing actually knowing how they do these things. Uh, and I want to actually open by making a little correction to uh, something I said last week. We were talking yeah. about uh, evolution and evolution of viruses and how essentially, yeah, evolution is all about mutation and viruses have very high mutation rates. And we were wondering why this was. I yeah. said, maybe it's something because Amandine asked me and I wasn't prepared. Yeah. I actually, I actually did know the answer as well. So I'm kind of, so and I feel cool. like you knew the answer too. I did. I just, well, we, I we just forgot guys. Yeah, this is <laughs> yeah we were under pressure. Uh, it's definitely something I knew before and should have known at the time, but essentially viruses, a lot of them anyway, encode their own polymerases. So yeah. when they're replicating their genome, again, if you didn't listen to last week, you're not going to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but if they're replicating their genome, they're using their own polymerase, which makes a lot of errors, which is why they um, evolve a lot faster um, in, in general. A lot of viruses do that. So now I'll get into <laughs> this episode. Uh, so, I'm, so I think Amandine's going to open for us. But actually, first of all, I want to talk about the importance of controls. So yeah. this is something... That's very important in biology and science in general. Uh, so for those who don't know, a control is sort of like a baseline. So a lot of times in biological experiments, for example, you could have a negative control and a positive control. Mm -hmm. So a negative control is like if nothing's going on, for example, and a positive control was if it's happening to the maximum. So it's best to give an example. So um, yeah. the, the easiest example for me to think of is one from a research project I actually did in, in my fourth year. Um, so I was like basically adding compounds called adjuvants to cells to try to stimulate them to have certain immune responses. And so for the positive control, I, had an, I used an adjuvant that we already knew was very good at stimulating immune responses. So we were like, right, that this is the baseline. This is what we're comparing to. If it induces something close to this, we know that's a good result. And then the negative control was, of course, adding nothing to the cells. So just leaving the cells as they were. So if you compare the negative control and the positive control to everything that you're looking at in your experiment normally, your samples, then you can start to see where it all fits together. So that's just something I want to get across yeah. first yeah no they uh, are important we yes. were actually we did like a module where we had to it was like a problem solving thing and sometimes they're like oh like if you have this hypothesis what would your experiment be mm. and I used to always forget to, I'd be like oh yeah this is my experiment and then I'd always forget to put in the positive and negative controls and I was like talking to you I was like god damn it why yeah. do I forget every time but yeah, yeah they are they're super important yeah because without them you, your data can't really be judged properly because you don't yeah have you the, can't the, interpret it it just yeah. means nothing yeah. like yeah because you could yeah. say oh the conditions in the lab that day actually mean that everything was producing more than it should have and then in yeah. that case you would have seen that also in your controls whereas because yeah. you have no controls you can never tell what actually caused anything in your experiment so the whole experiment is thrown away which is yeah. a bit of a waste so it's always worth it's so <laughs> thinking about your controls guys yeah uh, um anyways so i was going to talk about is um screening and selection so mutagenesis studies so how you can find out how a gene functions or to find out what the function of a gene actually is and I would say that I'm a visual learner and this is a very sort of visual way of testing things and finding out what gene does just actually it's not even 
So it's finding what the gene does, but also trying to identify the gene. So there's two types of genetics. You have forward genetics where you don't know what the gene is and you're basically seeing like what gene is responsible for a particular phenotype. And a phenotype is just how it looks, basically how your yeah. individual looks. Does it look like what you would, so a wild type is what is like a normal version, you know, and then you have a mutant. And so you're trying to see, is your phenotype look like the wild type or does it look like different, a mutant? And then you have reverse genetics where you have a gene and you know where it is, but you just don't know what it does if you mutate it. So like, what does the phenotype end up being? And so the way you can mutagenize individuals is with, surprise, surprise, a mutagen. Um, and it basically just alters the DNA in some way. And usually when you're doing mutagenesis, I don't know, I, was, I actually wanted to ask you this, would you do mutagenesis on mice and stuff like that? Like, um, or is it always, it, like I, I assume like in embryos randomly? Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I think it might be in mass embryos. Yeah, more, yeah, that's what I'm thinking anything. as well. Yeah. So like, it's always done in cells um, or like, you know, bacteria, yeast, in plants even. And so there's different types of mutant mutagens. You have transposons, which are basically a sequence of DNA that can jump in and sort of insert itself into the DNA. And that can cause frame shifts, which means that the sequence is out of place. So instead of reading it the way you normally would to produce the proper protein, it can't do that anymore. Um, you can get point mutations where the letters change. So, you know, the DNA is A, T, G, C, and you have different type of mutagens that can do that. Even like putting your sample under UV can mess it up. It like fuses spaces together and makes it harder for uh, transcriptional machinery and replication machinery to replicate and transcribe the DNA. And in this way, you get mutagens. And so um, basically you have selections and screens. So screens is when you have individuals and you're just like, okay, here's a load of mutants. Well, this is how I imagine it. Obviously it's controlled. <laughs> it's gonna give you loads of mutations. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I'm gonna cover you in whatever mutagen it is or put it in the agar or whatever. And you're gonna try muted genize as many genes as possible so if you saturate them it means they're completely like if you saturate it it's you're expecting that each gene has been hit at least once and right. there are some genes when you mutagenize you'll find because you can sequence them afterwards to see which ones have been changed and which ones are the same and oh. some genes you'll never find mutated and a lot of the time it's because that gene has a really really important function and if you change it it just, the plant or the cell doesn't survive. Like that individual doesn't survive and they're called housekeeping genes. So those are essential to life basically. And another point, which is slightly kind of related, but I just thought it was kind of cool is, well, not cool. You know what? It actually is very annoying <laughs> is that um, mutant, genes are often named after their mutant phenotype as opposed to their normal phenotype. Oh, so right. an example is like in Drosophila and fruit flies, they have red eyes normally, but the gene for the eye color is called white because mutant oh. flies have white eyes, which, okay, I understand why they would call it that, but it's sometimes yeah. confusing when so, you're like, so oh, you're the like, white gene. Yeah. So if you're talking about your fly that has a red, wait, your fly that has yeah, exactly. a, a white, um, yeah. <laughs> you're saying my fly has a white gene. So that means it has yeah. red eyes. Yeah. I see how that's confusing already. Just... Yeah. So if you have, if you have a wild type white 
gene you actually have red eyes and if you have a mutant yeah. white gene you have white eyes okay. so like it can get right. confusing yeah because you but, think um, the normal thing would be what they name it after yeah but, but it, it does make sense because a lot of the time like things like you know the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes like they're named after breast cancer because when they get mutated that's what they cause yes and so yeah, that makes a bit like more a, sense yeah. yeah so like in that case it would make sense so that's kind of why but um it's still kind of, it's still confusing. Um, and so it's obviously a systematic screen, like they go through it in a specific way, but the way I imagine it is like, you just have a load of them and you have to individually go through them when you're screening and say, does this look like my mutant or not? And you can classify the mutants in different ways, like appearance, maybe if it's uh, you know, a behavioral trait, if it's a mouse or if it's a plant um, different things like that. And you say so, behavioral trait if it's a mess or if it's a plant <laughs> yeah i feel like it's, i don't know i think a plant does have behaviors i it's very it's a controversial see, statement see, you're, looking your, you're looking at your plant <laughs> yeah sorry i was looking that. at my plants and i'm saying that um and i can't give it an example off the top of my head so i'm probably saying okay <laughs> if anyone knows a plant behavior <laughs> please let me know because obviously i don't know oh surely they do Maybe I don't know. Do. I, I don't know. Like, I'm not a plant do expert. they absorb this much water? That I suppose is not a behavior. Okay, I take it back. Plants don't have behaviors. <laughs> Maybe they do. I don't know. But anyways, um, so that's basically a screen, and you have a specific way of you know ha- seeing the mutants or not. Like in bacteria, for example, if you just look at a bacteria, you're going to be like, how the hell, you know, can you tell is it mutant or not? And they have different ways of doing that. Like you can have sugars and agars that'll change color if, you know, the bacteria breaks it down a certain way or releases certain chemicals and enzymes and stuff like that. So in that way, you can just tell by color. And then a selection is when you're trying to pick out a specific mutant. So, for example, I suppose the most basic one is like uh, bacteria, or bacteria being resistant to antibiotics. So if you grow bacteria on a plate that has antibiotics, the only ones that are going to grow are the ones that are resistant. So that way you can see like, how does that differ to a wild type to one, or I don't even know anymore if non-resistant bacteria are the wild type, but to one that's Mm. non-resistant, you can find what genes differ. And that way you can see which ones affect, you know, bacteria being resistant. Um, and there's different sort of things like, oh, do you remember the word oxytrophs? Do you know what, do you oh, remember the, vaguely, what that means? I can't really remember what it means. <laughs> you caught me. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically that they can grow on nutrient, lim- they can't grow on nutrient limited media. Like they need oh. a specific nutrient to be there. Like, I don't know, maybe they can't produce a specific amino acid. And so if you don't provide it for them, they can't grow oh, right. anymore i'm actually not and... that embarrassed i didn't know that that's that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's less embarrassing than i thought i thought it was like something quite general that seems pretty specific. no yeah <laughs> it is kind of specific i was just but yeah basically if you put what was an oxytrope on a media that's missing a specific nutrient then and they grow then you know that there's a mutation in the gene that mm. say makes that specific amino acid yes, or whatever yeah. And then yeah. you can identify genes. So in that way, selection is really picking out the ones that you're actually looking for, you know, um, versus the, the first screening. one. Needed, yeah, the screening is just kind the of the screening is more. Yeah, you're kind of just looking yeah. at what the pheno- what phenotypes appear and, you know, that kind of way. And um, another thing about mutations, which I actually think we mentioned before, 
but it's just that when you get a mutant, for example, a bacteria, all cells that come from that first cell with a mutation are going to keep that mutation, if you know what I mean. It's not like the mutation to the bacteria being resistant to antibiotic just appears randomly in each one. I mean, it yeah. does, yeah. <laughs> but it was already there. Yeah, it gets passed on. It gets yeah. passed down. Yeah. yeah, it's not like they just appear when you put them. So that way you can select for your, your specific gene. And once you kind of have identified that one gene that you're looking for, you can start mutating more and you can look at, they're called higher order mutants. So it's just like a mutant with two genes mutated or three genes mutated. And you can see how those genes interact and if they're involved in the same pathway. Like for example, if you mutate two different genes, is the phenotype the same? Does it revert it back? So that's a suppressor mutation. Does it revert it back to wild type? Is it that it enhances the mutation? And so you're, you know, it enhances the phenotype, sorry. Or, you know, does it add together? Does one cover the other? And in this way, you can find out all these pathways and networks of interactions between genes and, well, I suppose the gene products, so proteins or whatever, they're non-coding RNAs. And I just thought that, that was really cool. And you can also see when you do mutations like this and screens and selections with, you know, those higher order mutants, functional redundancy, which is basically that a lot of genes kind of encode proteins that will carry out a very similar function. And so if you knock out one of yes, those, I remember this. It'll, yeah. it'll still look fine. It won't even look like a mutant. But if you knock out, say, two, three or four of them, then it can have a really drastic yeah. effect so it's essentially got backup genes that do the same yeah. thing yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and so, so yeah that's yeah. kind of just a way to find out like how genes interact in the same pathway and what their actual function is hmm. so yeah, cool. that's yeah. Just yeah. i always thought that that was a cool thing about biology when i first heard about all this like screening and mutagenesis stuff that the way we find out like what something does is by essentially a lot of the time getting rid of it and yeah. seeing what happens as a result. So you're talking exactly. about these mutants and that kind of thing. And it's a big thing in all biology, you know, the idea of knockouts, which is similar yeah. to that, I guess, which is yeah. like, like, let's say, again, I'm just going to bring it back to immunology. <laughs> if, uh, like, if you're looking to see is a certain protein in the immune system important in, let's say, infection with TB, you might mm -hmm. infect a group of mice that are, you know, so-called wild type, like you said, they're just normal. You infect them yeah. with TB, and then you also infect a group of mice that have a knockout for that gene that produces that protein that you think might be involved. And you might see that, oh, you know, the, the knockouts are actually getting really, really bad TB. So it mm -hmm. looks like that protein was really important and that gene was really important yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and so when you mutagenize genes, like you're saying, you can have different sort of outcomes. So like you're saying, you could have a knockout where the gene is like completely gone, yeah. like complete loss of function. You can have sort of a medium loss of function where it just isn't really working as well. You can have gain of function where it works really, really well. Or you can have things like dominant negative mutations where the mutant completely, even if you have a working copy, the mutant copy is just like, nah, sorry, you're not going to be working anymore. So right. you can just it see. It just takes over, yeah. And takes over yeah so you have loads of things like that like gene interactions and stuff so yeah cool. uh yeah i'm gonna talk about uh something that maybe isn't as uh fancy on the face of it uh microscopy because <laughs> i think pretty much everyone i would like to think has had some experience with some kind of microscope i think yeah. a lot of people have surely even in school yeah, if, you know yeah that's what i was gonna say if you yeah. did science in school yeah. Even I think a lot of schools as well in junior suit, you have to do science. And I'm sure yes, there's some exactly. sort of microscope work there. Yeah. So microscopy, as a lot of people might know, is one of the oldest uh, technologies in cellular biology and biology in general. 
and it's still one of the most important um, because it's obviously how we look at very small things. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there actually, is there a microscope? I don't think there is. Maybe there is to look at DNA like that small. I feel like there isn't. Well, well, there could be because I'm, I'm going to sort of get into it a little bit later, but there are some modern microscopes that can actually look at things on the atomic level where it can actually distinguish what? individual atoms. Yeah. No way. Yes. That's ridiculous. It That's... is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I it doesn't involve that. some levels of like a prediction and stuff like that to determine where things are. Yeah. But in, in general, like it's thought that you will be able to have microscopes that can look at individual atoms. So definitely you could look at yeah. DNA and genes and stuff. Crazy. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, what was uh, oh yeah, Antoine Van Leeuwenhoek. He's the guy who <laughs> essentially we need to thank. The, yeah, we need to thank for microscopes. He was the first one to sort of observe cells. He was looking at um, uh, iso isolates from a pond, and he couldn't believe all the oh, little yeah. creatures he saw. And yeah, he was very shocked by this and realized there's this whole other world that was much smaller than than we could see. Um, so yeah, and then you have from that, which is like light microscopes, um, which again, you'd find in schools and stuff like that. They have a certain level of magnification that they can see quite small things, but not tiny, tiny things. Mm. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Uh, and then you have the modern microscopes, some of which can see even individual atoms. So um, a lot of different microscopy techniques have their own advantages and disadvantages. It's not just about <clears throat> uh, which ones can see the smallest uh, object yeah no I so, we don't even use yeah we like in, since in genetics, I went genetics yeah we don't yeah. even use microscopes we don't use anymore. it too much in some of the immunology stuff it depends what kind of area of immunology I think in. we did yeah before to look at I'm gonna say macrophage some sort yeah, of cell remember we did in like secondary yeah, yeah. or something yeah we did a little bit of it in immunology too it wouldn't be one of our dominant technologies but it would be at least a part of a lot of projects I yeah. see a lot of these technologies actually, we're talking about, they feed into each other. Yeah. So yeah. I was going to say, we actually do use microscopy in genetics, but it wouldn't be to look at genes. It's be look more, do, does, is this promoter transcribing the gene kind of thing? Or once the protein is produced, where does the protein go? Okay. Which yeah. I think, yeah. So we so use like the proteins, that's stuff. just biochemistry and not even doing genetics. Okay. Right. Sorry. <laughs> True. Stay, you're actually stay, right. No, stay you're in your very lane. right. <laughs> stay, stay in your lane. Leave, leave that stuff to the biochemists. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah. So you need to balance the advantages and disadvantages of different types of microscopes, uh, which yeah, is microscopy. So generally when you're using a microscope, you need to have a thin layer of materials or of cells uh, that you're visualizing. So the key is really in preparing your samples, because if you don't prepare something right, you're not going to be able to look at it. And even though that sounds kind of boring, it's all about preparing your samples. It really all, is. All it, I can think about is peeling the onion, right? you know, oh, and like yeah. in school, in, in so like, yeah, I'm preparing science. my sample, just like peel the onion piece. <laughs> that was oh. quite a good example, though, because it's quite easy to get a thin layer. I think that's pretty yeah. cool. Looking back at it, I was like, that, that's a smart experiment yeah um, no, it is. so yeah the key is to try to prepare your sample in a way that doesn't damage it too much because you want to look as you yeah. want to see it uh mm -hmm. sometimes you have to freeze it for some types of microscopy um okay. or you have to cut very very thin layers um yeah. which are very difficult to, to do unless you have the right equipment again it all depends on the type of microscope uh so yeah. you might hear when you're talking about microscopes and stuff the term resolution so you know mm. if something has higher resolution that you can sort of see more detail um, but uh, until quite recently, I didn't really actually know what the word resolution meant. 
Yeah, no. <laughs> so a lot of my uh, people who use microscopy, I think they're called microscopists. Uh, don't quote me on no, that. No, they're not. Are no. they actually? I, I, I don't so. know. <laughs> don't, microscopists? I, 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 uh, I think so. And um, they use okay. something called the Rayleigh criterion for uh, resolution. And this means that uh, a re resolution is the distance at which two points can be distinguished as separate points rather than being viewed as a whole. So if you have two points that are very close to each other and yeah. you have a microscope that doesn't have the resolution to, to that distance between them, they mm -hmm. will just look like one big blur. They will look yeah. like they're one object. Whereas yeah. if you have a slightly higher resolution that can see that distance, you will see two distinct blurs. And then obviously the higher resolution, the clearer it'll be. And that kind yeah. of thing. I'm just talking about at the very, you know, yeah. uh, edge of what you can see with this microscope it, you, everything will look like a blur at, at its maximum <laughs> zoom um oh yeah that's true so uh so light microscopes which you have in classrooms and lots of even teaching labs in college and stuff mm. um they have a resolution of about 200 nanometers so you can distinctly tell that two points are different if they're 200 nanometers apart um and then you have some modern very expensive and very large mod like microscopes that can have yeah, resolutions they are massive. yeah they can have resolutions of the atomic range as i was saying so you can actually look at individual atoms which is again mind-blowing uh, yeah that's so, ridiculous so then i was saying better resolution doesn't always mean a better microscope because the better your resolution the worse the working distance is so you can't zoom in and out as much if you have high resolution so you're kind of stuck like let's say you want to look at one detail in a cell um, yeah. very closely that that's grand use your high resolution microscope they can see that very closely but if you want to zoom out and start to see oh well what's actually happening then beyond that you'll need to use another microscope because you have a very small working distance it just okay. with high resolution uh, essentially it's very hard to focus it unless you're at the mm. exact right point so there is a bit of a trade-off there it depends yeah. how broadly you want to look at this sample are you looking at one tiny thing very closely or are you looking at like a group of things so yeah, you really need to know what you're at before you get the microscope set up. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you can also have microscopes to take advantage of something called fluorescence, which is essentially like things glowing. Um, yeah. So like you can have one wavelength of light um, put onto your samples that have these uh, fluorophores, which are like, you can think of it as kind of proteins that glow. Um, and then when you put this wavelength of light on them, they'll emit a different wavelength. So let's say you put red light onto them and they'll shine blue. Uh, yeah. So if you did like uh, junior cert chemistry, you might remember Bohr's energy levels and that kind of thing of electrons jumping up and down. If you no, don't, that's okay. I uh, well, no, I didn't do it. So I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, essentially electrons jumping up and down create different wavelengths of light. So different colors. Um, yeah. That's the kind of microscopy we'd be using to look at the genetic stuff. Because okay, what you're looking, yeah. yeah, for the promoters and things like that. Because what you do, so the promoter basically controls whether the gene is expressed or not. Hmm. And so if you put the um, like a fluorescent protein, the the DNA sequence for it in front of the promoter you're looking for, or after the promoter you're looking. No wait. Oh, you should you probably have explain real quick what a promoter is for people who don't. Who oh, don't know. the pro well, the promoter decides whether the gene turns on or off and yeah. so under certain conditions the promoter decides does this gene well it doesn't decide but you know what I mean yeah. does it get transcribed or not and yeah. so if you have your promoter that you're trying to see like when does that gene get expressed or whatever you put the 
the protein that glows so a lot of the time we well not that I would know I don't actually use it but the examples we get are like green fluorescent protein you put that yeah. sequence after the promoter and so whenever the promoter turns on you get this green fluorescent protein produced and that way you know uh, is it yes. on or not and then sometimes you can do like protein fusion so if you're looking if a biochemist is looking where <laughs> does this protein go you know if they yeah. can have a protein fused to the gfp which is the green fluorescent protein and then wherever that protein goes you see the same the glow exactly. from the gfp that's, that's just what i was about to say that you oh can, sorry Oops. you can tag yeah but that's that's great yeah so with these microscopes you can look at these proteins that have this green fluorescent protein or something similar that glows attached to it so you can actually look under the microscope and see this thing moving um yeah and because it glows you can distinguish it from everything else so if you're looking at mm. protein x and you want to see does it go to this side of the cell um after i add this chemical or whatever yeah. it is you can just actually watch it go and you can take a little yeah. video or something like that and you can see those yeah. online Another thing that's actually pretty cool that I see sometimes is they have a microscope. I don't know if they use the same microscope or different ones, but they would take it, say, how you would see it sort of under a light microscope. And then they would take the same picture of the exact same cells, say, with the, the glowing thing, whatever, yes. which so you, you were saying. The two, you and then you can, the you, yeah. yeah, you can like Photoshop one on top of the other. And then it just looks really cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's a pretty cool thing. And you thing can also use... Them, so. Uh, antibodies, because we all know about antibodies now, I hope, uh, which are very specific <laughs> that grab onto specific parts of proteins. So you can use antibodies that have fluorescent tags. So it's sort of like glowing antibodies. And if you have these that are specific for a certain protein, you put these into your cell and see, okay, do these glowing antibodies attach to anything? And that's another way to see is a certain oh, protein there. Um, that's, that's called cool. immunohistochemistry. Very fancy name. Immunohistochemistry. Um, I feel like I so, should have known that. But uh, yeah, so we use microscopes a lot in lots of different types of biology. Uh, to really understand how they work, you have to start going into the physics of light, which involves mm -mm. talking about constructive and destructive interference of waveforms. That is something no. that uh, I had to do in the module <laughs> last semester. Um, I'm not going to go into that because physics is not uh, something I'm delighted to talk about <laughs> at the moment anyway. Um, so I'd recommend if you're interested in that sort of thing, there are cool YouTube videos because it's quite a visual thing. I think yeah. a lot of physics is where you kind of need the diagrams of the waves bouncing and stuff. Me describing mm. it, even if I could describe it well, <laughs> wouldn't do it justice. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's the main thing I want to say about microscopy. So yeah, so I'm going to bounce back to this big thing we've all heard about, PCR. Yeah, PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction i just realized i don't have it written anywhere so i was like oh please be right but it is it's it polymerase is, it chain is. reaction even i know okay. that and i'm not yeah and i i'm now looking at the person that invented it right invented 1983 is he there in the room with you <laughs> yeah and i'm just like how do i pronounce your name sir or it's carrie carrie k-a-r-y i think it's carrie but i can't remember yes okay carrie Let's go with carrie. it's actually it was pretty amazing invention to be quite honest and they got a nobel prize for it in 1993 and um basically what pcr does is it it amplifies a sequence of dna of your choice and you have these things called primers so they so let's pretend you have your dna sequence it's like a line and at one end of the line you have a primer that attaches to it and on the other end you have a reverse primer that attaches and they both they're like two arrows facing towards each other along yeah. that sequence. You can think of it like two trains that are heading towards 
the middle of the tracks together they're exactly. both coming from different ends chugging towards yeah. each other kind of thing yeah yeah I don't know if chugging track. is the right word. <laughs> no, it is. It's the, it is the right word. And the track is Thank your you. DNA. Look at <laughs> yeah. us. And it, so that's basically what is happening. Um, but when you're actually doing a PCR, because I actually have done these. Have you done them in the lab as well or not? Is um, that not in my really research do? project, I haven't done PCRs, but we would have done yeah. them the odd time in third year as sort of a practice thing. Yeah. But it yeah, wasn't maybe part of my in second project. year, I think we did as well. Yeah. But basically, it doesn't look that fancy. You have a tube, you have your Eppendorf tube, and all you're doing is pipetting in, like, whatever, your forward primer, your reverse primer. You have water in there. You have the DNA template. And then you need to add in nucleotides. So these are the bases, the ATGs, Cs, um, that'll be able to match up. And then you also need a thermostable polymerase so this is something that's going to replicate your dna and not be affected by changes in temperatures because a lot of the time proteins if you expose them to different temperatures especially high temperatures they break down or the way all the bits connect together just kind of don't anymore or you know new connections happen and they just don't work anymore hmm. one of the most famous ones is the tap polymerase um it came from thermus aquaticus and the other thing about polymerases is that they can have varying degrees of fidelity. So this means that some polymerases copy the DNA template perfectly, whereas others sometimes can in integrate different mutations and things like yeah. that. This goes back to can... my correction that I said earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Full circle. Yes. Um, but sometimes you actually want to introduce mutations on purpose. Uh, if you want to say mutate a gene and then like you can take it out, mutate it and then reinsert it. Um, it's not exactly that simple, but that's the kind of idea. And the way the PCR works is it runs on cycles of three different temperatures and the cycle runs a couple of times, like 20, 30 times. I don't know. It can vary, but that's sort of the average. And so you start off by denaturing the DNA, which means we I don't know if people know that DNA is two strands. Um, you need to pull those strands apart. And so you do that at like 100 degrees for a minute. And then you need to anneal your primer. So that means those little bits that I was saying stick on to either end of your DNA. You need to lower the temperature to do that. So it's at like 50, maybe 65 degrees Celsius again for one minute. And then you need the polymerization step where you're basically making another copy of the DNA and that's at around 72 degrees for like one to three minutes. Mm. And you can run these cycles. There's different, it depends on like the polymerase you're using, how much of the DNA you want to make because the DNA actually grows like exponentially and then it sort of plateaus off. So the way, the reason it would plateau is just like if there's no more nucleotides or if like, I don't know, the primers break down or something like that. I don't even know if primers break down. I just made that up. <laughs> but something about the primers being depleted um yeah because i think it has to include the primers each time yeah you need prim oh yeah because when the primers attach and extends they become part of that template and so if you have used up all your primers then obviously the oh yeah that's another important thing people might not know that you need a little primer at the beginning to start uh replicating dna like you can't just replicate one strand of dna on its own you have to have a little part at the beginning that's already attached to the dna and then extend mm. it yes. and that actually happens in our cells normally anyways mm. for you know when you're replicating dna and so you run those cycles like a couple of times and yeah, i mean lab. it sounds yeah. like a big yeah. deal but all you do is put your little tube into a machine and like press a button and just leave it there for like however long like half an hour or an hour 
Mm. And then what, so then you can do different things once you have your PCR. What I have been doing, because I was doing some of this for my final year project, um, I want to look at what I have made. And so to see if you have, you know, amplified your DNA, you can run it on a gel. And so we use agarose gel. I don't know, it's some sort of carbon source, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's, it's actually like a galactose polymer. So it has little holes in it. And you make this gel, it looks like a rectangle of jelly. That's clear. Mm. It does and look kind of tasty. Yeah, I well, it would. I think gel, but... if it had color in it, it would look tasty because it looks clear. Yeah, I mean, I it's feel still like it should be tasty. colored if you're going to eat it. <laughs> okay, anyway, okay. Don't eat the gel. Anyway. No, don't eat the gel. Yeah, actually, because I'm I put ethidium bromide in the gel. Oh, it's, right. it's just it's a, it's a muted it's a mutagen. So don't do that, guys. Yeah, you need to wear gloves because. Oh yeah. Yeah. What, what you do actually? What you do before you put the DNA in? Pretty sure you need to mix it with ethidium bromide. You need to. Oh no, you don't. Do you? Now I can't remember. But you need to add a dye to your DNA before you put it in. Yes. Um. So that it'll glow. But. Oh, sugar now I can't remember I'm gonna to have to look that up because that's gonna really annoy me but um yeah basically your DNA is negatively charged and when you put it in the gel so you put it at the top of the gel the top of the rectangle you can insert it, it has these little wells which is just like a small hole that you put it into you pipette into it and you put elect are they electrodes I don't know they're yeah, just yeah, to me yeah. They're, yeah they're wires and so you have yeah, um yeah, so you put the negative charge up where the negative DNA is and the positive charge down where down the other side of that rectangle. Yeah. And so the DNA will move away from the positive charge and towards the... No, I, no yeah, away from mean, the negative yeah. charge towards the positive charge. Yeah. Um, I don't know, is that physics or is that chemistry? It's definitely not biology. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's basically how the DNA runs on the gel. And because yeah. I was saying that the gel has little holes in it, the way it works is that if your DNA is small enough, it can pass through the holes and it can move down the gel. But if you have bigger pieces, they find it harder to move. And so once you're finished running your gel, the way it's laid out is the bigger pieces are at the top and your smaller pieces have sort of moved down the gel. And you also would insert a marker into the gel. So this also kind of flows with the electric charge and it acts as a marker for different sizes so you can be like oh at this point in the gel that's I don't know 500 bases and here is 700 bases or whatever depending yeah. on what marker you're using um, and yeah basically once you run it on the gel you need to, you can put it under uv light which makes the the ethidium bromide that you put into the dna light up and so you can see it and you yeah. can take a picture of it and yeah it's pretty <laughs> share cool. on social media yeah um, exactly yeah so in the context of discovery it's always really important i always see it in scientific papers these uh pictures of the gels because it really allows you to see visually pretty easily like the difference yeah. between let's say a group that didn't get treatment and a group that did um like yeah. you know like i said before cells that don't get anything put on top of them versus cells that do so you can see, right, we have all these gene fragments, like a fragment uh, at 500 bases, like you said, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, that isn't there for this other one. So we know that it's producing yeah. different genes and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it allows you to start to make investigations in, into what the differences could be between certain things in your experiment. So yeah, you yeah, can also really see like tool. if there's 
like a specific mutation in it. For example, before you run your PCR, or no, not before, but you can treat your DNA with like say an enzyme that'll cut at a specific site. And if that site is present, then you know your DNA will be cut and you could see oh, say two yeah. bands. Whereas if the site <laughs> yes, isn't present, yeah, yeah. there'll be only one band and it'll be bigger than the other two because it wasn't it's cut. Two things like one. that. Yeah. 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 I do remember doing this in in third year. I think we did a bit of that stuff. Yeah. Um, with plasmids I think it was a lot of the time when I was using my the like the gels for my experiments it wasn't exactly to sort of as a result per se it was more to see did this part of my experiment work like did I actually amplify the DNA did I actually cut oh, the DNA before you moved on to the next step before I moved like, on yeah. to the next step right. yeah that's what I kind of used it for okay yeah. just yeah just it can sure be used for right lots track. of things basically yeah um and then the next technique I'm going to talk about is something that I've, I've done quite a bit in my fourth year project and I'm pretty passionate about it. I think it's a really cool <laughs> technique. It's called flow cytometry. Ooh, um, we did used, start learning about this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's used to characterize cells, which might not sound like the most exciting thing, but hopefully I'll yeah. convince you that it is very cool. Um, first of all, a big fact that might make you think it's cool, it allows for the analysis of about 50,000 cells per second. Think of that yeah, speed. That's I crazy. I don't understand how we can fine i mean i do kind of but it still boggles my mind that you can yeah. like pinpoint specific cells and see with like, that speed does it, it is yeah. crazy yeah it's crazy so um essentially different cell different types of cells have different markers they're called which are things that make them different so i'm going to focus on the markers that are outside of cells so extracellular markers um, and flow cytometry is most traditionally used for looking at those so it's not like cell surface yeah molecules. yeah it could also you could also say cell surface yeah so extracellular means either on the outside of the cell or you could say cell surface it's grand sort of interchangeable yeah what's it called the space in between is that not the intermembrane space, space. intermembrane yeah. Ah. Yeah. ah we learn something new every day ladies <laughs> and gentlemen <laughs> um yeah so uh again uh, like i said a little bit in microscopy you use fluorescently tagged antibodies again so these antibodies that kind of glow and they attach to things. Uh, so you have antibodies that are specific for the different markers that you're looking for and they glow yeah. once they bind. So for example- Yeah, how does they control that? Or do they control that? Or, um, oh wait, I thought it was only if, as in it'll only, you can only see it if it binds. And then if it didn't bind, you kind of get rid of them sort of thing. Oh, I, I think maybe that's part of it too. <laughs> I think that, that might be more, more like the truth. Uh, so for, I don't know, for example, I'm just guessing you could be looking at like four different markers. So for marker A, you have an antibody that can attach to that and that glows green. And then for yeah. marker B, you have an antibody that glows blue. So then you put these cells with the antibodies and all of that, you do all these again in tubes before you put it into the machine. Mm -hmm. And the machines can then measure how much of each color is expressed from each cell. So it picks up all the wavelengths. Yeah. So it'll say, okay, there's this much green from this type of cell you know, that kind of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, it allows you to separate cells based on their markers. So you might know, um, you know, one type of cell has loads of marker A. So yeah. then the, the machine will be able to tell you, well, all the cells I saw had lots of marker A. So it looks like you have loads of these cells. Yeah. Um, so uh, as well as looking at particular markers on the cells, flow cytometry machines also measure the size of cells and also how granular they are. And granular means, or granularity, uh, it roughly means how much stuff is inside the cell. So 
in immunology, there's some cells that have a lot of stuff inside of them because <laughs> uh, they have a lot of things that they like to shoot at other cells, for example, to kill them. So if a cell is very granular, you'll know it's one of those. Um, and then the size and granularity can also help you determine if a cell is alive or dead, or you can use something like I did in my project called a live dead die. I used BB510, shout out uh, so to that live dead die. Um, so this Wait, die, what is that? BV510. So it's a die that can determine whether or not a cell is alive or dead. So if a cell is dead, um, its membrane will be, will have lots yeah. of holes in it. So then the yeah, die yeah, can yeah. get inside and the cell, in, will, yeah. the cell will glow. But if a cell is alive, <laughs> the cell won't glow. It sounds weird. Yeah. You usually expect something living to be the thing glowing. But actually, it's the yeah. dead cells that glow because they're the ones yeah. that can't control what can goes you see, inside them. Can you see the live cells? Like, do they... Because in my mind, if, if are you looking at your microscope? How do no, you see so them? No, so this photocytometry machine, you get this output um, of, a, basically it's a graph. It's a graph, yeah. Yes. I know it's a graph, but yeah. how do they, is it just that the, the graph, like I'm wondering how does it tell you that it's not, it just doesn't see a glow, is it? Yeah, so you have it compared again to controls. So you have controls where let's say it's just, a load of cells that should be alive or it's mm. just beads they aren't even cells so you're yeah. comparing all these things and you're saying oh well this population which i know should have a lot of dead cells has loads of this bv510 oh yeah you know when you're measuring it because the way i like have seen the graphs is that you're measuring two things at the same time yes um like two for two different markers and it's on this sort of i don't know correlation ish yeah. graph i don't know what the word is but yeah, is that the like same for you would you axis, yeah yeah would you be measuring two things or is it just the one or yeah, like so is it just be... alive versus dead no surely alive and dead is on the same yeah axis. i think a lot of the time you measure it alongside things like the granularity because if a cell is oh, okay. very granular then that also yeah. can mean it's dead um, oh, yeah, so you, you would measure it along with criteria that would also give you some of that information so cool. yeah, it's very useful for characterizing cells. And because it works with such a large number of cells, like I said, 50,000 per second a lot of the time, and yeah. it means you have a really high uh, sample size. So rather than in other experiments, like let's say if you're looking at mice and you're saying, does the treatment work in mouse A, B, or C? You know, in terms of the statistics, there's always gonna be a chance that some of it is just down to chance, you know, poss yeah. you know possibly. Whereas if you're looking at over 50,000 cells every second, so you're looking at potentially millions of cells, the yeah. chance that each of those individually is just doing something a bit random is very low. So you actually get really good statistically significant data from flow cytometry. So it's a very useful technique in biology because it's not, it's gonna pick up if something happens a lot, you know? Yeah. So then you're pretty confident that that's just not a rare event. That's um, pretty cool. So yeah, through measuring all these different markers, you can also detect uh, differences between um, cells, like heterogeneity, it's called. So you can mm -hmm. look at, does something have, not just yes, no, does it have marker A? But you can see, does it have marker A, B, and C? You can look at loads of different parameters. So mm -hmm. that's something that you can't do with a lot of other techniques in biology. A lot of other yeah. techniques are sort of a yes, no for something, whereas yeah. flow cytometry allows you to measure lots of different things at the same time. And then because flow cytometry, again, is working with massive numbers, it also allows you to look at rare cells. So when you're, if you're looking under a microscope at, let's say, millions of cells, and you're flicking little bit by bit, looking at the different cells, the chances of you seeing one of the rare cells that are out there like, um, are, is, is low. You're not just going to, yeah. when you're looking across a sample, stumble across a cell that's very rare in the body. 
Whereas if, yeah. you put, if you put it through a flow cytometer, it will say, okay, I went through a million cells and I found, let's say a hundred of this cell, which is the one you want to look at. Mm. So another thing a flow cytometer can do is it can actually characterize and then separate those cells. So yeah. let's say you want to look at this rare cell type, but you're like, I don't just want to put it under the microscope. I'll be here for years looking for this cell. Yeah. You put it through the flow cytometer, you tell it, okay, so this cell has this marker. So then mm -hmm. when it sees the color that's associated with that marker, it puts it in a, in a tube for you and says, okay, this tube only has those rare cells. That's uh, crazy. I yeah. don't understand how it does that. Like, uh, that's insane. Yeah, there's a good bit of like sort of physics of light again involved because um, yeah. it, it picks up the intensity of different wavelengths and things like that. It's actually very interesting. Um, so yeah, it is a fascinating technology. Uh, the cells are go through the machine in this like fluid stream. So that's why it does it so quickly. It's essentially like flowing past this sensor and it gets yeah. the data so quickly, which is why you can get so many cells per second. Um, and then I think that's a good way to maybe explain the, an application of it is again, to go back to my research project. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so when I was looking at these cells and I was adding, you know, different adjuvants to them, which are these again, compounds that stimulate immune responses. I was trying to see, okay, if you add this adjuvant to this type of immune cell, will it get activated? So this type of immune cell is looking at a dendritic cell. When it gets activated, it expresses different markers on its surface than it does normally. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to see to what extent does it express these markers when I add A, B, or C. So mm -hmm. I got to put the cells through the machine and then I saw, okay, so when I added A, it, there was loads of maturation markers expressed. So that yeah. means that immune cell was really activated. So, um, you know, that was a very useful thing to be able to do, to look at a big population and very quickly see what was going on. It does yeah. require a good bit of prep in the lab, but yeah, it's not like, it's not crazy. Like it's not more than a couple of hours work, but obviously you need to get your samples prepared. As I said before, for a lot of techniques, it's all about the preparation. And then once mm. it gets going, you're, you're good. So, uh, yeah, because yeah. once it's going, you just leave it in the machine and walk away. Like, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and a lot of the time with, as, with flow cytometry machines, these things are worth millions, by the way. Um, like, you got to use one. That's insane. Um, I mean, I didn't really get to. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I wasn't the one touching the machine. I, yeah. I got to use it in terms of give someone my cells, say, you're qualified <laughs> and they to do, do it that. for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, kind of. <laughs> Well, yeah. they put it in the machine. I looked at the input and output. So I was essentially mm -hmm. every step apart from touching the expensive stuff because they didn't want me doing yeah. that, which is understandable. Too clumsy. In fact, they even have in a lot of universities like in Trinity, they have like sp staff that are spe specifically looking after these machines because that's how mm -hmm. important they are. And also because they're very expensive to repair and that sort of thing. So you actually yeah. need specialized staff who really understand these things. Um, yeah. So I got, I got to sort of work with those people too. So... Yeah, yeah. That's There's all I want to say about That I wanted to say about um, just like okay, I'd, it's a bit controversial, but so everything oh. like you're saying, you know, everything needs to be well controlled, and so yeah. you don't want contamination and things like that. And I just feel like when I'm in the lab, anyways, and I'm not even doing big projects, like it's only small things. I use so much plastic, and yeah. that's oh, that annoys me so much. So like, that's say a big for example, science, yeah, yeah, like it's there's so much waste involved. So if anyone's out there wants to be an entrepreneur and like figure out this, like fix this problem, like, for example, if I'm running my PCR, you know, I have all my different 
Eppendorf tubes, which are plastic. And then each time I pipette something in, the tip from the pipette is plastic and I can't contaminate anything in the tube and I can't contaminate, you know, yeah. the where I'm taking the stuff from. And so I need to use a, a new tip every time. And if I'm using like five things in the one tube, that's five tips per tube multiplied by however many tubes I'm doing, you know? Yeah. And that's just something and, and, that kind of... And a lot of the time I was you know. using like 96 well plates. Yeah. So, so I had to prepare sometimes not necessarily 96 different things because usually you'd have a few things that are the same because you're going for a mm. bigger sample size. But the amount of tips I'd go through even just doing one plate and I'd have to do yeah. loads of plates. It's <laughs> so. just, I just, it's so, and even like if you're, if you have a, like an agar, a plate of agar, like that's plastic as well. And I suppose they do use um, glass wherever they can, like beakers, you know, that's all yeah. glass. And it is really difficult to to get a tip that's, glass especially if because you're going through so many of them and it's just such an effort to clean i think is probably the big thing yeah and it's, it's all about contamination that plastic yeah. you can have it wrapped in vacuum sealed and that kind of thing so like a lot of the plastic i would have used as well would have been in this thing called a fume hood which is mm -hmm. which keeps things sterile and yeah. um, so you don't even open the bag until it's already in this sterile environment inside this fume yeah. hood to make sure that it never gets contaminated because that would just ruin an experiment if something gets contaminated yeah. from the air so yeah everything has to be super clean and that means as soon as it gets any way in contact with air or with something else disposed of so so much yeah, waste is in, is in science um but you know even the gloves like plastic gloves yeah you know but a lot of time just... unfortunately for science it is at the moment a necessity unless someone yeah. again like you said can come up with some kind of recyclable alternative but at the moment glass you know is quite expensive for example it and mm -hmm. it's not as easy to it's not very easy to like repurpose it into something yeah. else and recycle it so yeah there needs to be some and even if you're talking about you know recycle because you're like okay we are using hard plastics or whatever but a lot of the time you can't like it's bio what's like bio waste biohazard or yeah biohazard yeah yeah so it's like i don't know even i don't even know where it goes like it's just yeah. it's in the big yellow bin with the big biohazard it's, symbol on it and yeah so like so. if you were using like you were saying ethidium bromide which is a very toxic chemical and you're mm. preparing that into a sample it's not like you can just even if that tip was recyclable just put that in the recycling bin yeah that could poison someone you know yeah. <laughs> like so, so yes it's a it's a messy area for sure and yeah, it's a good yeah. thing to bring up about science yeah, just want to put it out there because yeah. it is really cool and like the thing is like it you do need it like you need the things to be sterile like Kevin was saying if it's contaminated goodbye like you're not using that experiment anymore you know because you don't know what got in although sometimes contamination is good uh, you know shout out to penicillin <laughs> discoveries <laughs> yeah, and that's stuff, a very rare case where contamination it is, is good. that's the thing it is very rare so yeah i just thought that was something to bring up before we yeah. kind of finished up because yeah i don't know it's something that kind of annoyed like i would love to proper be dedicated but when i see all that waste i'm like oh like i don't know it's just something that mm. i wish was a little bit different about you know working in the lab but yeah yeah that's all I want to say for this week. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, I might just talk about then a bit about ELISA, the other yeah. technique. Uh, so essentially the two main techniques I used in my project were flow cytometry, which I just talked about, and ELISA, which stands for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. Uh, this is quite difficult to explain without diagrams, but I will do my best. If you're in a position to look at a diagram of an <laughs> ELISA, maybe Google image sandwich ELISA, and you'll get what I'm saying a bit better, but I will do my best to explain it. Um, so 
you, you, so again, it uses antibodies, which can specifically recognize pretty much any protein possible, as long as you engineer the antibody correctly. Uh, so in this technique, it's all about using the specificity and diversity of antibodies to detect the presence and or the concentration of a particular molecule. So again, the best way to explain it is with an example. So I'm going to talk about my project a little bit again. So my project, again, trying to stimulate immune cells to see if they were activated, that kind of thing. So and one way I did that was, again, with flow cytometry, seeing what markers they had. Another thing mm -hmm. is, what are these immune cells making? Are they making the right immune signals that I would expect? So I had to use ELISA to do this. Um, so ELISA, because these cells were producing something and it was leaving the cell. So I had to sort of examine the liquid around the cells to see what was in it. So mm -hmm. I was looking for a particular immune signal, which is called a cytokine. So I already had the cells from the previous day that I'd already stimulated with the right adjuvants and different compounds. And I had a plate with all of them in it with um, lots of different wells. All of them had the different types of cells and the liquid and all that stuff. So you start off your ELISA with um, a, a thing called a detection antibody at the bottom of each well. So you add your detection antibody. So imagine it's sort of sticking up from the bottom, like this Y shape sticking up from the bottom of um, a well, so like a, a little like hole, I suppose. Um, and that catches any of the cytokine that's present. So you put in the antibody and it, that should stick to the bottom. And then you give the whole plate a wash. So anything that didn't stick gets washed off because you don't want anything non-specific happening. It only has to be the stuff that's supposed to stick. Uh, then you add your samples. So I was adding the stuff from the top of my cells. Um, and then as, as well as that, of course, in different wells, you have to add your controls. So, you know, let's say the liquid around cells didn't have anything stimulated, um, got to do with them, um, and also standards. So things that you know have a certain amount of this immune signal in it, because then you can compare at the end to see, uh, like you did with the PCR, um, if you're comparing, oh, this thing has 50 whatever um, nanograms or whatever it is of a certain substance, and then your sample looks very like that, then you know that yours also has 50 nanograms. Okay. So you add your samples to the top of these antibodies and hopefully then any of that cytokine that's there will stick to those antibodies. Then you wash the whole plate again to make sure again, anything that isn't supposed to, anything that isn't stuck down is there. Mm -hmm. uh, then you add this thing called a detection antibody, which is again, so another antibody that comes onto the top of the uh, immune signal. So the immune signal has already been captured by this little antibody at the bottom, and now also has an antibody on top of it. So this is why it's called the yeah. sandwich ELISA, because it's sort of like stuck in the middle of the sandwich yeah. now. Um, and that detection antibody on the top is attached to another protein. And then you add an enzyme <laughs> which attaches to that protein. So what's the point of this? Uh, because then the final step essentially is that you add this thing called the colorimetric substrate, which is again, a glowing thing. Uh, so it glows a particular color, uh, but it actually changes color when it's broken down by this enzyme. So that means the more of this signal you're looking for that's there, the more the color change will be seen. So mm. let's say in, in my case, I was going from a blue color to a yellow color. I remember this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some samples after a few minutes of you leave that reaction were glowing really yellow, which means okay, I have a lot of this substance in these samples. Mm -hmm. And some of them were still only a tiny bit yellow. So that means, okay, so there wasn't that much of that stuff there. Yeah. So yeah, you allowed that reaction to run and then you put it in a plate reader. So it wasn't just me looking at it going, ah, that one has loads. 
No, uh, I had to put it in a machine that measured the exact wavelength of each sample to say, okay, there's this much yellow. And then compared to the standards I put in, they're like, mm -hmm. okay, so that much yellow um, means this much protein or whatever yeah. it was. So that's how you can tell how much of different substances were produced by this technique, ELISA. Uh, so yeah, essentially using that and flow cytometry, I was able to determine exactly what was happening to these cells. I could see what was happening on the outside of them, what sort of changes they're making to um, their maturation markers, and then also what they were making. So I thought it was pretty cool to sort of know that a good few things cool. about these cells by the end, my little buddies. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, you can also actually use flow cytometry to do something called intracellular cytokine staining. So you can actually look at the proteins inside cells with, with certain types of flow cytometer, but I'm not gonna go into that. That's not something I did and it's a very different technology. Very but also briefly very though, useful. Is there, is there a glowing thing that goes inside the cell? Do you know? Is there um, any glowing involved? I think so, yes. I think with flow cytometry, <laughs> there is always glowing involved. As far as I okay, know. Okay, that's all. Apart I won't from, ask any more from, questions. Apart from when it's telling this, the size and granularity of cells it doesn't get anything to glow there it but yeah. that's still it tells that again by advancing wavelengths of light in a certain way so yeah i, I was gonna to say that. it hardly has a little like a weighing machine like no. hmm, yeah this cell is like <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know how much a cell would weigh yeah uh, not much i wouldn't say no i don't know <laughs> why was i gonna say something grams like what yeah i know I was, no, no, that's I was the smallest thing i could think of i didn't even start thinking of nanograms and stuff like that same i was gonna say nano or micro and then i was like i actually don't know which it would be or yeah. it would be even smaller well, than that yeah. so i was like i'm just gonna keep my mouth shut <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyways <laughs> so i think that's that's pretty much all the different yeah. techniques we want to talk about so hopefully now you might have a better idea of when you see scientists discovered xyz you'll be like I know how they might have done that. They could have done this <laughs> kind of-ish. Yeah, you, you might have a vague idea. Um, and hopefully if you listen back to this episode, you'll go, ah, maybe that's the one they used. So you're welcome, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> you you're welcome. understand every scientific discovery. No, uh, we only talked about some of, I suppose, our favorite techniques to talk about and some of the ones that would be most common. Because as I said, yeah. the two techniques I mentioned at the end there are the two that, the only two techniques I used in the very short research project that I did. So sometimes, yeah. you know, you use several techniques, but you might not need to use a whole lot, you know? Yeah. So actually we, we covered quite a bit of the essential stuff. So yeah, yeah. a lot of the common techniques. So uh, I think that's it for this week. Yeah. Don't know what so. we're going to talk about next week yet. No, we're, we'll see. <laughs> but, uh, you, you <laughs> Be surprised. Find out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.